Well, on Rebuilders, today we are having a look at a number of challenges that are facing the church at the moment as we continue to navigate the grey zone. What are some highlights, Mark? The issue of discipleship capacity, the end of churn and burn, the great volunteer resignation, the boomer apocalypse, just some tantalising phrases to make you listen. I mean, tune in for nothing else other than the boomer apocalypse. I mean, that's, yeah, it's not as scary as it sounds, but maybe it is. You have to listen to discover. (laughs) And if you listen to the episode and you want to know a little bit more of our behind the scenes thinking um, and resources that we mentioned, you can join our subscriber list by heading to rebuilders.co and signing up there. Let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy. I'm here with Mark, who is celebrating. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. I'm stretching. Oh, you're stretching. stretching. Looking like a celebration. Oh, well, that's good. Pre, yeah. Bit pre-podcast of a stretch. Pre-podcast. Yeah. I'm celebrating in anticipation of oh. the episode we will produce. Yes, it's going to be great. <laughs> what are you doing, Daniel? I'm looking up, looking up some very interesting facts over here. I do love my facts. Yep. Um, I, was, I was chatting with someone yesterday. Um, about countries and the differences between countries that drive on the right-hand side of the road and the countries that drive on the left-hand side of the road. Yeah, all right. Oh. So 141 countries drive on the right-hand side of the road and 54 on the left-hand side. Interesting. And here in Australia, we're proud left-hand drivers. Yeah. Um, as is... Say the breakdown again. 141 on the right-hand side. Yeah. Um, and then 54 countries on the on the left hand side mostly are they mostly former british colonies yeah so obviously australia's in there uk um new zealand ireland Ireland. (laughs) um uh, yeah new zealand india south africa um thailand japan um Mm. yeah japan does yeah um but yeah but the the, the french side the french side do you know, I think in America there's some place which actually drives on the left-hand side of the road. There's some, like, mm-hmm. county or something. I remember seeing a thing about it. I'm fascinated, fascinated to know because if you're driving from the UK into Europe... Yeah, no, you like, just... Yeah, because I saw... You, is there, like, a special... There's a massive... Or- there's just hundreds of cars <laughs> crashed into each other at the channel <laughs> entrance. A- yeah. Uh, well, thinking of those guys. But I did see in London, like, cars with right-hand drive driving on the left-hand side. So, there's oh, obviously right. people okay. that come okay, across okay. and, yeah... Yeah. What fascinated me more, there's only three countries in the world that still use Drive the, down the middle. imperial system. <laughs> North Korea. Let me guess. North Korea, America, and Iran, is it? No. Oh. You've got one of those, right? America? That's right. Uh, Myanmar and Liberia. Hold on. Oh. So only those three countries use- Oh, only three. Miles and pounds and- Which again doesn't inches. make sense because like- you got a lot of former British colonies that drive on the left-hand side of the road, but then you've got America, Liberia, Myanmar. Oh, Myanmar was part of Burma, which was a British colony, but America and mm-hmm. Liberia sort of define themselves, but are using the British imperial system. Mm. But I've seen – I remember oh, you'd know more lately about words, like mm. a lot of word, like the difference between like English like words from uh, the UK and then and the spelling. The spelling variety, yeah, yeah, yeah. States yeah. and just how that kind of evolved America – Kind of did they was there some guy or something that tried to simplify things or something? 
I actually don't know uh, much about the history of the um, spelling in mm. in the US. I look, remember seeing something a while back, but it was, it was interesting. I should go back. Well, can I say a relevant one? Gray zone, which I wrote in my oh, manuscript yeah. with an E, and yeah. in the book it's with the American A because yeah. it's published in America. Yeah, right. Can we get an Australian copy? I will go through the book <laughs> and with whiteout. Thank you. Yeah, uh, and I can will. you also change all the isations from Z to yeah, Z to S, S. And, and also the uh, like color? O U R. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And I think there's a difference with toward and towards. Oh yeah. And momentarily. What's the difference? What do you mean? Momentarily as opposed to what? Well, the American momentarily is different to the English Australian momentarily. And aluminium. Aluminium. Okay. Well, that's pronunciation and that's got nothing. Well, until you start talking about audiobooks, it's not necessarily a big issue. But um, because I think moment, we mean it like I'll be with you. Momentarily. In a sec. Yeah. Momentarily (laughs) is like in a moment. But I think in America it's like momentarily is like next or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, they're still linked. They're sort of linked, but it's used differently. Yeah, yeah okay. Hmm. That's what we call regional variation Yeah. in language. Well, thanks for joining us this week. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> On Liddy's Linguistics. Um, mm. No, I've got nothing more for you at the moment. Something something maybe next week. That could be. So the sub, the sub ones, the Liddy's Linguistics and Daniel's devastating facts <laughs> about uh, the D-Day. No, the Daniel's D-Day. D-Day I've actually started another book. Sorry, this, oh, I'm going off track here. I have started another book on World War II and more on the Germany side. It's oh, fascinating. Oh, well, yeah. look forward to hearing more well, about that. Look for our sub substream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it, yes, it's a pleasure to be back again. Uh, last week we explored, um, I guess, a bit more of a meta view of culturally what's happening in uh, the world. Um examining more of the grey zone um, and the dynamics that are emerging as part of that, one in particular being that there are in a grey zone there's often two contradictory things happening at the same time Mm. Um, and the example that you gave was the acceleration of ideas whilst a slowing down of um, economies and invention and production that kind of of thing and, and the way that that's sort of filtering down and impacting us. But today we are... Moving to take a look at the church, how all of these things are impacting the church and kind of the five, (coughs) there's a bunch of challenges that the church is facing in terms of discipleship and leading um, disciples well, but you've noted down five that we're going to approach and have a bit of a think about today. Um, Not that you're necessarily (laughs) presenting any answers to any of this, but it's it's important to have um, language and understanding Mm. to approach these ideas and know that they're existent and Mm. um, it helps you tackle them. You've got language to talk about them. I think this is part of like navigating grey zone well. It's like asking what, you know, before you get to answers, you've got to ask what are the right questions to ask. Yeah. (coughs) And, um, you know, so these are really challenges, questions. And I think one thing that, you know, I've mentioned before on the podcast is I don't think the future is, you know, if we're in a more networked age, often in a networked age, answers don't come from the top. They actually emerge, you Mm. know, from the bottom and, um, you know, and from a broad span of different people. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of the ways that I see that, Rebuilders, just talking to people, is rebuilders often a thought stimulator for people. They hear yeah. something and they go and run with it, apply that in their local context. So I think this is sort of almost, you know, this is these are the challenges we're going to wrestle with the church. And I have hope because I know that people out there, it's not just going to be one person. It's going to be lots of people who 
partnering with the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, will move towards answering uh, some of these these challenges that come before us. Great. Well, um, shall we kick off? Mm. All right. Well, there's some big meaty terms here. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to throw them to you uh, one by one and you're going to unpack them for us. Yeah. So the first one, first challenge that um, you're seeing the church face in this gray zone moment is discipleship capacity. Mm. What do you mean? Okay, so discipleship capacity is a new term I've coined and there will be a few new term coinings today. Great, many uh, coins. Many coins. Mint, it's a mint here, literal the- mint. Um we, I've been reading about um, really. I'm fascinated at the moment with institutions and governments and and how do institutions work. And and um, one of the things that when you look at governments is that they talk about something called state capacity. Mm-hmm. So you might have two governments, one, um, you know, which might have low state capacity. One might have high state capacity. Mm-hmm. Both of them desire to say fix the roads in their nation yep. and have a fantastic road system. However, their ability to execute that is dependent on the state capacity. So that's for all the different organisations, their bureaucracy, the funding, their access to resources, their getting people behind them enables them then to pull off that task. You know, it's what your capacity. You might have two people, you know, if you think about, say, fitness capacity, um, you might have two people who are uh, both desire to run a marathon but yes. the person who is much fitter and has run marathon before is going to have a greater capacity to actually run that marathon. Yeah, okay. Um, so I thought about this term of capacity and I began to realize that partially I think what we've seen in the last two years, and I think COVID, again, one of the terms of COVID is was a great revealer, mm. um, is that it's revealed actually our discipleship capacity. Now, I think of a lot of ways in which we thought about churches and what made a healthy church (coughs) uh, before Mm. in the last period was really around our ability, our programmatic capacity. So we had this ability to be logistical or programmatically of high capacity. Yeah. And often churches that were celebrated were churches that had lots of people at them, were running lots of programs and seemingly able were to able operate on a very high capacity. Mm. Um, you know, church, you know, we saw that, you know, at first in churches which grew larger, then sort of grew into mega. Then we saw sort of able to grow into multi-site and then we saw even able to grow into different countries and almost churches that had this high capacity that they almost like denominations were sort of the lauded churches. And that is representative. It's really hard to do that. Not every church could do that. No. Uh, Not every church had the resources, the the culture, the leaders, the capacity, the finances or whatever, or, you know, the quality of bureaucracy and and support Mm. uh, that, that goes along with that. But I think one thing that was missing in all of that was discipleship capacity. What do I mean by discipleship capacity? Discipleship capacity is that people who are part of your community, your capacity as an organization to allow them to live as followers of Jesus and to live the way of Jesus, in particularly in contrast to the narratives of the world. Yeah, okay. The influence of the flesh, people to live in the spirit. And one thing that we've seen is since the pandemic, the pandemic had this break period and that break period revealed many things. But one of the things that it revealed was that there's lots of churches which may have high logistical capacity, Mm -hmm. high programmatic capacity, or even another one, 
would be looking at perhaps churches that aren't big and you know mega or multi-site or whatever, but perhaps had people who just kept coming through stickability, perhaps had high loyalty capacity to that particular congregation, that particular place, those particular people. But then you had this phenomenon, which was talked about on here before, that all of a sudden you had people where after six weeks their congregation dropped by a third. Mm. Uh, There's churches where giving's gone down by 60 70%. And what people began to realize in the conversation has been like, oh, man, I thought I had my people. I didn't have them. I thought they were being transformed by their sermons and these programs. They weren't. And you saw all kinds of things happen, political polarization you know, taking over, uh, people deconstructing their faith and walking out the door. And, and what you realize was that the actual concept of discipleship capacity was easy to ignore because its weakness was covered up by our logistic and programmatic and stickability yeah. capacities. Yeah. So I, I have a sense that <coughs> growing our discipleship capacity is going to be absolutely crucial in the way of going forward. So if you think mm-hmm. about it, like, we celebrate, I think, churches which had logistic and programmatic capacity, but what that did was it gave us a tremendous breadth of spreading ourselves far and wide, but what discipleship capacity gives you depth. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's depths of commitment to Jesus, it's depths of commitment to his cause. It means that you'll have resilience. Discipleship capacity creates resilience. So if there's a pandemic where you can't meet for a year, you can't go to church, those people will still be pushing into that community because it's yeah. actually about Jesus and they'll understand there'll be suffering and there'll be disruption mm-hmm. and they're still pushing into Jesus and actually going deep with him in times of trouble. They won't fall to the different political polarizations of the day or their faith won't deconstruct when they don't have the program to hold it all together. Mm. So I have a sense that part of the way forward is we need to look at our metrics and we need to really ask the question, how do we really disciple people? Mm. Um, And how do we switch from perhaps the previous models that part of the, I think the weakness that's been revealed now of both the, say, smaller or medium-sized church which has had real stickability Mm. or the big programmatic church that's able to do things with a high degree of logistic or programmatic capacity is – that often covered up levels of cultural Christianity. Yes. Uh, but I think the next big thing we really need to go, off, to go after is how do we create churches, communities of faith that actually are, have high discipleship capacity? I think that's the, the remnant, the next thing that God's going to do has to be built around that. That's one of the big questions that leaders need to say, you know, I'm going to stake my life building this going mm. forward. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge. Um Okay, your second one is discernment capacity. Yeah. Well, I think a subset, I mean, I sort of thought about this, is this a separate category? Is this a part of discipleship capacity? But I do feel that one of the things that you know I've experienced is that for many years, you know, I've been interested in faith and culture, discerning the different narratives of the age. There's different people that wrote into that. And, you know, often years ago there'd be a conference and you'd sort of be invited to the small workshop, you know, and there'd be the 20 people at that workshop which yeah. were interested in culture. It was like a a side thing for yes. those who were really interested. But my sense back then was this is going to be front and centre, the power of narratives, the power of uh, things which contend for our loyalty mm. you know, in our culture is only getting stronger and we're not just in a culture that is still fairly Christian, we're actually a post-Christian culture where uh, you know, in many ways the culture is trying to disciple us. And so to have discernment, 
both in a, I think, an intellectual sense, but also a spiritual sense, and those two are obviously intertwined. Mm. Um, that's one again thing that was lacking. You know, you saw churches which didn't talk about politics really for the last twenty years all of a sudden be overrun by politics. You yeah. saw people deconstruct their faith away from Christianity, and 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 some of the stuff they were deconstructing was you know unhelpful that it sort of cultural barnacles that it attached itself to the hull of the church, but then just falling into other. Forms, you know, from people yes. went from the right to the left or left to the right, you know, or um, the inability to just question the sort of, you know, hedonistic, acquisitive, 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 What? What word? Acquire you? things. Acquisitive. No, acquisitional. Wouldn't it be? Acquisitive. <laughs> I think it's actually a word. I don't know why Acqu- you're looking well, because no, it's like acquisition because you've got the computer. <laughs> but I think you've got a computer. Yeah, acquisitive. Acquisitive. Thank really? you. Excessively interested in acquiring yeah. things. New word. New word of the day. That can be Liddy's uh, linguistics. We'll be doing yeah. an episode on that. That's next Tuesday. On the Comes etymology out an hour of after battles of D Day with Daniel. Acquisition. Um, yeah, acquisitive. So acquisitive. you know, the individualistic, hedonistic, acquisitive life as well is another mm. cultural script that's out there. And I think if we look at it. Now, I think two years on the journey that many churches have been in, we lacked discernment capacity. Mm. There were people who you know, I've had conversations with um, where, yeah, there's sort of still a faith there. They're still doing the different practices and they're still sort of committed to, you know, what they see as their faith. But you talk to me, oh, my goodness, you've completely swallowed the, the ideological book on this or that. And, you know, you can see how that's undermining your faith. And so that discernment capacity, I think, is worth a separate capacity. And it's mm. no longer something which is just the workshop. I think it's something where you see Paul, you see, you know, I'm, I'm reading Mark at the moment, you know, and you realize Mark's gospel, you know, is about announcing Jesus the king and God mm. coming close and the answer of, you know, the suffering servant, the image from, you know, um, you know, Isaiah. But it's also this critique of the Roman imperial propaganda and, and cults. And so yeah. doing theology, interpreting culture, you know, criticizing propaganda from outside the church and when that has, you know, uh, uh, compromised the church, that's no longer an add-on. That is That also is going to be central to the task going forward. So we need mm. to build up our discipleship capacity, but we also need to build up as leaders uh, and believers our, our discernment capacity and help others to do that. Yes. People you're leading, your friends, your peers, your children, you, you know, your, your family, your friends, our culture – you know, uh, needs to do that. And just like, I mean, one thing, um, just a little, I guess, testament from the different podcasts we've done. It's fascinating listening to this. This is for Christian leaders. Yeah. But it's so fascinating that often we'll hear stories of people who have no faith who start listening to some of this stuff or other podcasts I've done because they are just people even outside the church are like want to have cultural discernment. Their heads are spinning as much as ours. Like they're like, what is going on? So I think there's even a prophetic evangelistic front to being sort of, you know, men and women of Issachar who explained the Mm. times from that sort of biblical perspective. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, The next one I feel like kind of uh, backs onto the first one, discipleship Mm. capacity. You're – you're suggesting we're approaching the end of churn and burn. <laughs> yes. Churn and burn. What do I mean by churn and burn? I remember talking about five years ago to a number of leaders from some larger churches and all of them said effectively, 
And these were churches were seen as quite successful that a lot of yep. people are looking at. And all of them said, effectively, what's happening in our churches is we have a 90, 80 to 90% annual turnover of mm. people. And they know that every year this many people are going to move to their city, this many students are going to come to study in their town, this many people are going to be looking for a church or checking a church out. And so they were just living on this constant turnover mm. where you get 90. And I even heard some people talk about it's like a river. You've got a river rushing through your church and you're trying to fish people out. And I remember thinking, you know, that's really hard to develop discipleship capacity. You totally. know, like formation and discipleship, it's a process that takes time yep. and long-term investment and relationship and being in place. You know, there are times when we get moved around by God and life and circumstances, but every 12 months moving faith communities, it's really hard. It's like, you know, if you were moving friends or you know, spouse or family every 12 months or job, you know, it's a very disorientating thing. Yet somehow mm -hmm. that sort of become acceptable in large parts of the church and not questioned. And, you know, at the time I remember thinking this this is sort of a, a weak spot that hasn't fully emerged yet. I was reading an article, I think yesterday or the day before, and Amazon, its model has been to come into a, a city or whatever and they've got these large sort of logistic, you know, sorting you know, facilities. Mm. And um, <coughs> they've had a churn and burn approach to employees. People come, they don't have employees who last for a long time. Yeah. You know, there has been critique of some of their employment practices. So people don't tend to stay, um, but they've just kept working on that churn and burn, that there's a certain amount of people. But their own projections and research is saying that by 2024, they're going to run out of people to employ in the United States. Yeah. And I read that and I thought of the sort of churn and burn that often happens in the church. And I thought there's, there's, a, there's a roof on this. Mm. <laughs> like there is a point where churches are going to start to run out of new people coming to them all the time. We have to work out. And, and this is not just a problem with the church. There's also cultural issues as well. So yes. no one just places the church. We see this at Red as much as we try. There are people who there's this huge turnover at, at yeah. times. And um, But I think there's something where one of the great tasks we need to put our shoulder to is to ask the question of how do we get people to stick? Because I think there's an end where the churches that have built their model on just getting lots of people and every year there's a new wave of people coming, there is an end point to that, Yeah, <laughs> particularly yeah. in the West. Yeah, so um, the analogy when we were talking about this yesterday that I used was um, like there needs to be a renewable. It's like mm. the renewable energy of yes. fossil fuels, you know. We're yes, currently running way. on like a fossil mm. fuel uh, mm. discipleship um, yes. church growth method, but it needs to be renewable. Disciples create disciples, right? And to play with that analogy, one of the problems with fossil fuels is that they create secondary effects and they create pollution. Yes. And it's interesting if you think about it, you know, a lot of the people who say do their nine months in a church, 12 months in a church, two years in a church and then go often deconstructing their faith or whatever, mm. it's almost like they've been vaccinated against faith in some <laughs> ways or they've had a bad experience and then, you know, because they're not working that through in a discipleship community over a long time, you yep. actually then build up a greater amount of perhaps post-Christianity in your society because mm. like being there, done that. Yes. And um, I remember there was an Australian, I think it was, was it maybe James Tacey, I think is is the Australian religious sociologist. I hopefully got that right. I, have, I think he said about 10 years ago, he said, you know, it's not that Australian young people don't like religion. He said they're doing their 18 months often in contemporary churches, but then they're not coming back. Yes. That's fascinating. So you, you, you do that at scale for a number of years. There's a point where the majority of people have left and they're not coming back. 
Um, so yeah, just as I like your fossil fuel analogy, yeah, we need to move to renew a renewal of the renewables. <laughs> And that's discipleship, isn't it? Like yes. the deeper you go with mm. God, the more renewal is built and yes. individual renewal leads to corporate change. And, and maybe going back to something we spoke about, um, <coughs> again, I don't know, but I wonder if, if you listened to last week's episode and if mm. you haven't, go back and listen to it. But we talked about these two things, this great acceleration of ideas and I guess radicalisation in thought alongside potentially, you know, I'm not 100% saying it's definitely going to happen, but there's a lot of evidence that we're moving to a cultural slowdown of the yes. economy, livers, standing livers, energy, standing livers. St- standards standing of living. And are livid <laughs> with anger, but they're managing to stand. Um, good on them. Yeah, good on them. Sorry, standards of living. Um, I wonder if, if there is a cultural slowdown. I wonder if part of this constant moving is actually a condition of the previous era of yes. endless growth, keep yes. moving keep expanding your life and maybe you know it's going to be harder to move around and commute and change cities and yeah yeah i mean well you did send us an article yesterday <coughs> about um the potential of or a, a writer suggesting that you know the grand um dream of you know traveling and mm. the golden age of travel so to it's speak over. is yeah. over um yes that was sobering mm. uh okay so that's the Potential end of the churn and burn era for churches. Um, what about the great volunteer resignation? Is that linked? The great volunteer resignation, sort of linked, but sort of different. Um, one of the big trends that came out of the pandemic mm. was the great resignation. Yep. There was many articles about this and um, written and, you know, about how people were leaving their jobs one of the economic conditions that happened in the background is was a number of things. One, there was a lot of stimulus. So all of a sudden people had stimulus checks and governments yes. were trying to get – there was actually an economic crash at the beginning of the pandemic that was almost similar to 2008. Yeah, right. We didn't experience it in the same way because instantly governments were sort of quantitative easing and, and cash stimulus and stuff like that. And, um, <coughs> you know, here, here we had in Australia, you know, they're paying companies wages and people's wages and stuff like that for a period of lockdown. Um, so all of a sudden you had people getting money without having to work. And then secondly, you had a number of people who stepped out of the economy, you know, some baby boomers who maybe were going to retire, stepped out of the economy. People made a lot of life reassessments, like yes. maybe I don't want to be working, maybe I want to spend time with my kids or I only want to work two days instead of five or, you know, four days instead of six or whatever. And so you had this withdrawal from the economy of lots of people, also working from home mm. as well. Um, I think I mentioned in our subscriber chats last week, it was just fascinating to go to London and, you know, experience, you know, I've been to London many times and just the busyness of the city is part of the city's sort of thing. And then sort of be on the tube on a Monday morning and it's like really quiet. It's just like, this is weird. Um, And I think 50% of Brits are still spending part of the time working from home. So I've seen in the culture this great resignation and you're now seeing like airports having at holiday times and vacation times this crisis because they can't get enough workers. Um, uh, You're seeing, as we mentioned, Amazon struggling to get workers, seeing that in many industries struggling to get workers. And I began to think about this and I think a large part of it is this reassessment of life. If the previous era Mm. was the great acceleration, work hard, get ahead, acquire, have experiences, you know, run around like a headless chicken. Um, the pandemic, we stopped 
And so many people, we, when we had these pastoral conversations, she had these conversations with friends and family, what am I doing? You know, yeah. the amount of people who've moved to the country, to the beach, rethought their lives. Um, there was a reassessment of values and mm. a desire not to run around in the same way. So I, I was thinking about this literally just a couple of days ago. <coughs> and I was thinking about something that, you know, I'd heard a lot here, talking to friends in the US, heard there, and then being in the UK and talking to people there is one of the common things is, yes, not as many people have come back to church, but there's less and less people volunteering. Yeah. One of the big trends post for the church post-pandemic and post-lockdown. And um, churches, you know, perhaps – Really interesting question was how is and I think this is probably more contemporary churches, but how are contemporary churches shaped by the Great Acceleration? Yeah, okay. So if the culture was acquisitive and <clears throat> running hard and high performance and high efficiency, high standards of excellence, mm. you know, if people are expect have high expectations when they go to the shopping center or to get on a flight or go to a hotel or go to a concert, you know, the church was part of that just general cultural milieu where you know what. You got on a Sunday at many churches was quite incredible what mm. churches were able to pull off, and that was part of the attraction. Um, and that requires, again, energy. Part of the thing that the world is struggling with at the moment is we have an energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. We also have an energy crisis um, because of geopolitical tensions. Yep. We've got an energy crisis also because we need to move into renewables and we've got to get there. Um, but that's causing shocks to the to the energy uh, uh, you know sector. Yeah. Um, so to produce things of the great acceleration, you've got to have tremendous amounts of resources and energy. Yeah. In churches, our resource has been volunteerism. Yeah. What if just like oil, that now costs more? What if just like gas, that's not as easy to get? And I think what's happened is. <coughs> Perhaps part of the transition from the great acceleration to the great slowdown is this rethinking of what people want from life, where they're going to go to. Again, you know, being in London, I was reading fascinatingly, like they're like, oh, the West End's open again, but only, you know, 50% of the audience is, you know, turning up. Yeah, wow. Like maybe in the in the great acceleration, you're going to have endless West End shows and, you know, Les Mis will rent for the next 5,000 years and plus 20 other shows, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe in the future, instead of 50 shows on the West End, or I don't know how many they have, it'll just be five. You know, maybe, you know, we're seeing in, say, Australian rules football here that the big games people are still going to, but the smaller games people aren't, you yeah. know. So there's a greater selectivity, greater choice, and people are not wanting to live the lifestyle of the great acceleration. So part of the change is if your energy base to run the kind of services you are running has diminished, how do you adapt to that? Yeah. Is that a challenge? And is the challenge then just a hoping that by 2024 everything will return to normal and we get that volunteer energy up? Maybe it's changed forever. You know, I'm yeah. starting to think has oil, you know, is oil and and I think, you know, the fossil fuels and different things that we've been using, that some of this has changed forever. Yeah. And um, it's not going to be the same as it was in 2018. <coughs> Maybe it's the same with volunteerism. Now I think about the the small Baptist church I grew up in. There was literally the, the, the pastor opened the door himself probably. Yeah. And there was a lady who played the organ and someone was on handing out the bulletin. It had very low volunteerism, probably, to run a Sunday service. We've expanded that in the contemporary church, but maybe it's time to reassess that. And I think the question we've been asking at Red is, mm. if we've got people less, 
how do you want to use that time you've got them? If yes. people are being much more discerning, maybe they're not going to turn up and move chairs for two hours, you know, yeah. to set up the, the worship space. But maybe you got them for an hour. Maybe it's better in that time is, you know, I know Daniel's like got some guys, we're planning to get some guys to read Tozer's The Pursuit of Holiness. Mm. Maybe that's better for an yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe church services need to re rechange so they're less volunteer intense, but more discipleship capacity building. Yes, which is renewable. I'm loving all these yeah. these, these themes <laughs> coming together. Um, okay. Well, the final one feels like it should come with its own like soundtrack or something. Yes. Um, the boomer apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> the boomer apocalypse. This is number five. (laughs) One of the biggest trends of all of this. And I don't know, I can't think of anyone I know who's talking about this, but I think this is probably one of the biggest issues the Western church is going to face. Okay, boomer apocalypse. Now, boomer, baby boomers, I'm talking to the post-1945 generation that was born in that sort of post-war moment. You can imagine people have been at war, they came home, the world had been in chaos and disorder. And they wanted to settle down. They wanted to just live a quiet life. And people had children. Obviously, men and women hadn't been together. There was lots of babies made. And there was this big baby boom across the Western world. And so you've got this large generation. Interesting, it was a searching generation. and um, But also that, that post-war period was actually the high point of the church in a lot of places. Mm. You know, you think of Billy Graham's um, you know, evangelistic crusades, particularly a lot of that was around the age of when those people were 16, 18, yes. making those faith yeah. decisions. And in many ways, <coughs> um, you, know, you think of the birth of things like Youth for Christ and these organizations which are birthed off the back of that. My parents and my parents-in-law both met at Youth for Christ rallies wow. in that post-war mm. sort of uh, you know period. And so you had the baby boomers um, – and again, often disparaged, and I'm not saying I don't want to say anything disparaging here. Obviously, every generation has its negatives, but I think the positives of the baby boomers is what the baby boomers have provided is a tremendous amount of volunteer capacity. Yeah. Um, you know, and just think about this for a moment. If you went through your denomination or through your town or through your city and you went to say 15 congregations on a weekend, what you would notice is the fact that in the West, the majority of attendees are baby boomers. Secondly, the majority of tithers are baby boomers. Thirdly, the majority of people who have institutional power. And what I mean by that, I don't mean institutional power is they're the power base, but the ones who will turn up and volunteer and do all the governance stuff that we need done, sit on boards, do books, do the boring stuff that they're not expecting to get self-actualized by. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, like my my daughter was was – did a spoken word thing for school and Rotary were uh, there and they were mm. the judges. And I looked at this group of Rotary people, all baby boomers, all aging, <coughs> and I thought, you're not going to get replaced. There's no one else under the baby boomer generation who on a Wednesday, cold Wednesday night is going to turn up to a hear a bunch of nine, you know, I don't know how much, I can't remember how old my daughter was, you know, 12 or something at that stage do some spoken word and give up their night. It's yeah. just not going to happen. And so there's all this this institutional power. So that's more I'm talking about the stuff that funds the institutional stuff that we need, who will open the door, who will turn the heater on, who will stand at the door and welcome people. Mm. Um, 
that is so much who who is giving the money that the foundations that are sponsoring that church that church plant on the other side of the city yeah. or you know so in many ways there's this tremendous uh, uh, kinetic energy, if you like, that the baby boomers have contributed to the church in attendance and everything. Now, post baby boomer generations begins in 1945. Yep. What's 19? I cannot do maths. Maths people, <laughs> oh, yeah. other humans What's your in question? the room. <coughs> if someone's born in 1945, how old are they now? Uh, it'd be 70 something. No? Uh, no, it'd be 87. 87? Okay, I'm so. not maths either. Just just put 2020. <laughs> there's, there's people who know maths who are just screaming yeah. at their earphones. Just uh, put they, 2022 minus 1945. There's people really. dying listening to this. Maths, 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 maths. 77. I was 10 years off. 77. Yes, see, I told you it was 70s. Woohoo. So, you, well done. So they're, they're 77. Success. All right. God bless them. They didn't need to use Google to find that out. <laughs> yeah, they would have been able to figure that out. Yes. Ten minutes ago. There's actual baby boomers screaming going, yeah. these kids don't know. You know We're really Googling sorry. It. Okay, God bless them. The oldest cohort of the baby boomers are now 77. So what we're going to see, and, and, and I'm, I apologise for the word apocalypse, but I, there is a reason I used it in a second, which we'll come back to. But we're going to see people retire able to volunteer less, health yep. will deteriorate, and, and people will pass. In the next 10 years, the oldest baby boomers will be 87, right? So you're going to see over the next 10, Good 15 maths. years. Sorry? Good, Good maths. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, you're going to see the baby, baby boomer generation begin to move to the retirement village or the retirement village in the kingdom of God to come. And that is going to take – out of the church, an incredible amount of attend attendeeship. Mm -hmm. It's going to take out of the church an incredible amount of volunteer power. It's going to take out of the church an incredible amount of institutional power, financial resources. And I don't hear anyone talking about this. So the church is going to, in the West, unless there is significant intakes of new people, is going to significantly shrink just purely from that demographic fact. Yes. You go down the, you go down the generations, you look at Generation X – not as many around. Millennials, not as many around. You're seeing young adults currently who are in church leaving in significant amounts of mm. money. So this is a huge crisis for the church that's coming. But I say apocalypse because apocalypse in the Greek has two meanings and one is a revealing. Mm -hmm. And this brings us right back to I think where we started, that this is a revealing moment that we need to look at now because we need – a significant improvement in a discipleship capacity. Yeah. <laughs> because we need people who can, can you know, give their lives to the mission of the church um, going forward. And we need, uh, you know, I think the, the moving of the boomers means that I think a lot of younger generation have often criticised what's gone before them. And some of that I can understand. But we're also going to ask the question of what are we contributing going forward? Mm. So there's a tremendous challenge uh, here. And, it, it requires us to change. You know, we need to look at how we're using resources. We need to look at, you know, what we're asking for our people. Um, we need to look at models of just consumer Christianity, which is like you turn up and we'll serve you. You know, these things are going to increase. If you think they're falling over now, they're going to fall over even more. But again, said a million times in this podcast, we'll keep saying it a million times, crisis precedes renewal, but we actually have to see the crisis coming down the road. And I think one of the great challenges for the church is we need to put our shoulders to building the discipleship capacity 
of our churches going forward because these things are coming down the road at us. Mm. And I, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, the baby boomers coming out of that period of war, that period of yeah. cri- like world crisis. Yes. Do you think that where we're kind of at at the moment is a similar crisis point? I, I don't think it's as catastrophic <clears throat> at this point mm. as World War Two. Yes. Um, for more on World War Two, <laughs> you can check out <laughs> Daniel's. Um, sorry, jo- these are jokes aside. There are probably people actually searching for these. Um, we could get there. Yeah. Talked about China in the last episode. Mm. Um, but regardless, we are definitely going to a period where the view of life, like I'll, I'll say this, to younger generations listening, um, you've been shaped with a view of life where you have over- Expect you have you have unrealistic and your expectations of life have been way pumped up beyond the possibility of reality to deliver it. Yes. And we're now seeing that in real time. That is going to be learnt even more. And um, you know, even the fact is like, you know, we're looking at a possible downturn in the economy. In a downturn from economy, you go from in the previous era of acceleration, it's like, I want a job that gives me meaning and has incredible community and great people, and I feel like I'm making a difference in the world. You flip from that to I need a job to pay the bills. Mm. Um, uh, And I think we're going through a great correction. And my hope in the midst of that um, is whatever this next period of gray zone and I think possible deceleration and slowdown and whatever looks like, I, you know, again, that's not going to be the thing which saves us. Jesus saves us. But in the midst of that, there'll be a renewal of people who turn to God in the midst of this crisis. And, you know, I'm really hoping, and I'm seeing first fruits of this. Yeah. You know, there's people who have already in the last two years pushed deeper into Jesus. I think as things possibly get more difficult, we're going to see more of that. Um, but I think the real key is, and I really want to make this clear too, is I was going to have a, a, a slight point to end, mm. a, a key point to end. Let me just go through this. In the era of the great acceleration, it was easy to live a life where you felt like you didn't need God. It was easy to forget God. It was easy to fall for the narrative that it's all about you. It's about self-actualization. As Christians, we're the ones who have a Christian veneer to our self-actualization. I think what's then happened is we've almost had this realization that it's starting to go wrong before the war in Ukraine, before COVID, before our current economic travails and inflation and all of these supply chain issues. People were experiencing that personally, mental health challenges, anxiety. Mm. And what you saw the church doing is in a sense, or some of the church was, okay, how do we slow down? How do we manage anxiety? How do we do this stuff? Now, that's really important. But there's a danger at this point where we just go into ourselves exclusively. Yeah. And and I think there's a real challenge to not just go into ourselves. Yes, we do need to look at our mental health. We need to take that seriously in ways we haven't in the past. Yes, anxiety is a significant issue. Yes, we need to slow down and not run around like headless chickens and come from a non-anxious presence. Um But also there's a great task there outside of ourselves that the Holy Spirit is inviting us into. The answer for this moment is not to just go inward. And the reason I talk about the boomer apocalypse is there are people who have given, you know, like I I think about people, I know so many of them, some who are no longer with us, who for 30, 40, 50 years sacrificed and volunteered and Mm. gave, and we've lived in the benefit of that. Yeah. We need to do the same now, not just for our own self-actualization, but for the task of the kingdom of God in the world. And, and I think there's there's a, you know, I think it's not where, I think it's a great question. Are we at a moment like that? I don't know. A different way I would put that is, are you at a moment 
where there is an axial hinge of history before you and you're being asked, what are you going to do, partnering with the Holy Spirit to make a difference in this moment of turnaround that God wants to do in the world for the church? That is a poignant question to end on. We will catch you next time. Thank you.